Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. What about your wife? You think she cares? That stopped him. For a few moments at least. Ah, Sylvia. I don't know. I lost her a long time ago. I don't know if she cares about this or not. I don't care that much anymore myself. Bosch watched him, looking for the truth. Water under the bridge, Moore said. So take the money. I could get you more later. I can't take the money. I think you know that. Yeah, I guess I know that. But I think you know. I can't go back with you either. So, where does that leave us? Bosch shifted his weight to the left side. The butt of the shotgun against his hip. There was a long moment of silence during which he thought about himself and his motives. Why hadn't he told Moore to take the gun out of his pants and drop it? In a quick and smooth motion, Moore reached across his body with his right hand and pulled the gun out of his waistband. He was bringing the barrel around towards Bosch when Harry's fingers closed around the shotgun's triggers. The double-barrel blast was deafening in the room. Moore took the brunt of it in his face. Through the smoke, Bosch saw his body jerk backwards into the air. His hands flew up towards the ceiling, and he landed on the bed. His gun had fired, but the stray shot shattered one of the panes of the arched windows. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Instagram and Facebook pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content. There, you will find a more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now that all that bullshit is out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 29 through 32 of The Black Ice. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explore how getting off your ass and knocking on some doors shaped chapters 25 through 28 of The Black Ice. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 29 to 32. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. Let's open up the murder book and turn a page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered so far in this chapter. Harry and Aguilar are involved in a raid of Zerio's ranch, where Ramos is killed by one of Zerio's bulls. Both Harry and Aguilar go into the tunnels to track a man who drove away utilizing a jeep. This man Harry suspects is Zerio. The guy gets away, but Aguilar noticed that, quote unquote, the Pope has new boots. While utilizing this clue, Bosch believes Zerio is dead, but Moore is still alive. 
Bosch returns to Calexico and places a call to Teresa. Harry asked Teresa how Moore's body was identified and learned that it was identified through fingerprints from his personnel files, which Deputy Chief Irvin provided. Harry asked Teresa to compare those fingerprints to the ones on a DOJ database and feels that they will not match. Harry suspects Moore changed the fingerprint cards in his personnel file when he had a change address. Harry tracks Moore to his father's home and learns that Moore went to Zorio and asked for money to buy his childhood home. In exchange, Moore assisted Zorio's narcotic operation in Los Angeles. Later, Moore became disillusioned with the arrangements, so he kills Zorio and make it appear as though he killed himself so that he could escape the country. Moore then pulls a gun on Harry and forces him to shoot him. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 29 through 32 is, life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And we begin this episode with Harry flying in a helicopter and you know he he's describing the helicopter and his time in Vietnam and it brings back uh, times in Vietnam and he actually gets to some of the you know viewing of the of the situation that happens in a helicopter now I have had the pleasure of riding a helicopter when uh, ops went down and I tell you it's the coolest thing ever it is the coolest the, the helicopter pilots are phenomenal but being having a bird's eye view of the whole operation it is really really cool and so uh when Michael DeConley was uh kind of distra- describing that scene with how surreal it was it is really true and again that's why I'm doing this podcast because Michael does a great job of putting you and us, the reader, into the actual event, and he describes it so well. And one thing we see as with Kovo, now he's the team lead um, mothership, I think he called it. And, you know, you start hearing the strain of when comms go down. And again, the back and forth, the modulation, the people's voice, everything sounds cool, but I tell you right now, I've been on numerous ops and I can tell you just like they were saying at the end of the last um, chapter when Ramos says, Hey, I just hope everything goes right. I again, I'm just saying it again. I have never been on an op where it went hundred percent where it was drawn up at, at the staging. When we stage and we had the operation doing operational planning, we're staging forward. Um, and then things happen. And again, you 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 do as much contingency as possible, but it seems to always go bad. And you know what always seems to go bad? Even in 2000, I retired in 2018, and with the high-tech encryption, comms always seems to go down. And it's it always seems to happen. It's just you could be, you know, we always do a radio check before we go out. So I'm gonna give you a picture. Before we go out, everyone does a radio check. Everyone ready to check? Yep, yep. Feel you? Okay, yep, yep. Uh, not, and normally, what I would do is I would do like a round, a round robin. I would call out, "Okay, Bob, radio check. You got me? Yep, got me. Tim, you got me? Yep. Uh, Jackie, you got me? Yep." So I would do this round robin to make sure everyone's radio was working. But you know what? When the operational actually went down, shit just. It always seems one person would come in gargled or cut off. And again, when Michael Connolly describes this scene in this particular chapter, it's so right. It's so on. And here's another thing that's really right, too, because when you're the team lead, all chatter stays off the radio unless you would call it, if you have the ball, then you have the ball. And if you're running it, you're running it. And one thing happens here, which is, which is true, is 
Harry's in the radio on, on um, in the chopper with Kovo, and Harry sees a jeep leaving, you know, the ranch. And he gets on the air and said, "Hey, Corva, uh, just to let you know the ground team has a jeep leaving." He says, "Stay off the air," you know, and that's true. Um, now Harry's right to point it out, but Kovo was also right to say, "Hey, look, stay off the fucking air. I got the comms. I see it, or I got it." Let me handle it because you have to get away from because then um, I've seen people start talking. About, hey, um, the postman's coming. You know, just bullshit chatter just to break the monotony. And you want to, especially during an operation, only chatter comes across the radio is essential chatter. And, you know, I'm going to paraphrase something from the book, which is absolutely true. Again, Michael Conley does a phenomenal job, again, of, of being inside a police officer's world. And again, from the book, Fear, though always unspoken, nevertheless strips a man of their, caref their carefully orchestrated poses. The adrenaline roars and the throat gargles with fear like a backed-up drain. Sheer desire to survive takes over. It sharpens the mind, pairs away all the bullshit. A once-modulated reference to point B becomes almost hysterical, expletive. And that, he's so right, because... You know, A, I'm going to go to point B. And when, when shit hits the fan, I'm in a fucking house. Or, you know, like I said, you, whatever the expletive that comes through your mind is, you want to hurry up and get that information out there. And again, the way he describes it, you know, the adrenaline roars and the throat gurgles with fear like a backed up drain. That is true. Again, I've been on the, I've been on the other side of that, you know, backed up train where I'm just trying to yell and and you know try to stay calm at the same time, but you know I'm yelling to make sure that uh, or I'm heightened to make sure that my peers know exactly what's going on. So then after they land and um they get into gunfire, you know, not not him but the militia and Zorio's men get into some combat gunfly. Everything kind of goes down. And then, again, from the book, I'm going to paraphrase, Romo Sokovo, in a low voice, he said, just meant for him, says, we got a problem. We lost one. That is a team lead's worst fear. When you hear, we got a problem. That makes, that puts a lot of fear in people. And they do not want to be team leads because of that. Because at the end of the day, is your op plan? Is your you, you you know your supervisors would give you a broad berth, especially because the policies are kind of broad when it comes to doing what you want to do. So your supervisors would give you this broad brush for you to you know, paint this or this broad canvas, excuse me, and you paint this operation the way you want to. So it's your baby. So if shit goes bad, again, supervisors are going to be held a little responsible, but at the end of the day, is your baby your operation and i it, sometimes i st stood i stayed up you know again my, my wife you know god bless her she can attest to this the night before a op that was my responsibility i never got any sleep i was going over the operational plan over and over again i was making sure i had you know every t was crossed every i was dotted and you know it's something that i'm going to say that the young guys it was a rite of passage, and I noticed the young guys got away from. If okay, law enforcement guys, I'm going to give you a little insight. If it's your op, and you got a whole bunch of people getting there early in the morning time, go to the fucking Dunkin' Donuts, get a bunch of coffee and a bunch of donuts, and take it to the operational briefing beforehand. Now, if back in my day, if you ran an op. And you did not do that. It was known, and, and and it was known, and people remembered. Fucking Phil, he never bought. You know, you know, he didn't bring any donuts and coffee to his own op. I mean, I get up at three o'clock in the morning to get here, you know, so we can do this this briefing at five, and you know, so just 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 saying, just saying, I'm living up to the stereotype. But get some coffee, get some donuts or bagels, whatever, and take it to your op. So you can make your, the men and women, at least they would have a fresh, uh, a little bit of substance on their stomach before they do work for you. It will pay off dividends. I guarantee it. 
And again, um, from the book, I'm paraphrasing, you know, Bosch could see there was a problem. It was friendly fire. Kirk had been hit with fire from one of the 636s, which that's one of the, that's one of the special rounds that law enforcement had. The wound was too big, too devastating, but too close together to have come from the weapons stocked near, uh, stacked near the prisoners, which means none of the prisoners had that type of firepower that would cause that particular wound. Again, from the book, they huddled close together. This time, Bosch could not hear what was said, but he didn't have to. He knew what they would do. Careers were at stake here. And again, I'm going to keep reading from the book. Uh, Ramos looked over at Bosch standing in the shadows of the porch. A silent acknowledgement passed between them. Bosch knew that the media would be told that Kirk had been fatally wounded by Zerillo's men. Nobody would say anything about friendly fire. You got a problem? Ramos said. I don't have a problem with anything. Good. Then I'm not going to have to worry about you. Right, Bosch? So, was it a cover-up? Yes, technically it was a cover-up. Did it make a difference? No, it did not. In the greater picture, the bigger picture, it did not make a difference. Kirk was killed in the line of duty, um, friendly fire or not while he was performing his, uh, like I said, in the line of duty. So at the end of the day, it did not make a difference, um, at least in my opinion. Would I have done the same thing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to come off and say some righteous, you know, guy who had this podcast, well, that was the wrong thing to do and blah, 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 blah. I can't say that. I, I'm not going to lie to you guys. So I don't know what I would have done at that particular moment. But like I said before, law enforcement is like sausage. Everyone loves how it tastes, but no one wants to see how it's made. And, you know, then we, you know, Bosch is going through the house with Kovo and Ramos. And, you know, they see uh, Captain Grenya and Arpice and Dance all had um, been killed. And the manner in which Michael points makes a, a very interesting note about Captain Grenya. And I picked up on this. And again, I'm not hoping I'm not reading into it. I don't think I am. But again, from the book, it was Grenier. Although it was not easy at first to tell because the bullet fired into the police captain's right temple had obliterated much of his face when it exited beneath the left eye. Blood had flown down from both shoulders and ruined the jacket. <laughs> God damn, Michael. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it, but I guess I took it as the captain got what he deserves. And the the worst thing about that whole situation that it ruined the guy's jacket. (laughs) I like it. It sounds bad, but I like it. I like the way Michael wrote that. I, I, I think it speaks volumes, you know? So, and so when they go through the house, they notice that Zarel's not there. And so Kovo and um, Bosch have this little altercation. Say it has to be that Jeep, that Jeep that was leaving. And um, Kovo said, well, I can't spare anything. Bosch, well, I'm going. And Kovo said, this is not your operation. Fuck that, man. I'm going. And again, from the book, Bosch came out of the house looking in the dim light for Aguilar and finally saw him standing near the um, prisoners and the militia. Bosch realized that he probably felt more like an outsider than Harry did himself. I'm going after the Jeep we saw. I think it was Zerio. And listen what and listen what Aguilar said. I'm ready. I love that. Because Michael Connolly has taken you, taken us through Kovo and these prejudices and don't trust anybody. And, you know, Ramo said, dude, he might be the 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 last honest cop in uh, Mexicali, but do you want to bet your life on it? And Again, Bosch saying, look, I'm trying, I'm I'm from the institutions, but I don't want to be institutionalized. I want to be an independent thinker. How many cops would have said, just meeting this guy, you know, Harry just met this guy two days ago. And now he's saying, I'm going after Zerio. He says, I'm ready. I like that. He's like, come on, we're strapping on. We're rocking and rolling. And, you know, you know, Aguilar is manning up. He is Bosch's partner. And, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure Aguilar is like, well, look, I, you know, Aguilar witnessed Bosch fighting for him, even to get into the briefing. He said, you know, he's my partner. 
If he doesn't come in, I don't go in. You know, and and that has to speak volumes to Aguilar. Again, he earned it. The the trust brick, as I was saying before, you know, last podcast, Aguilar has earned this trust, and now he's repaying repaying Harry's trust by saying, "You're going to go. I'm going with you." And so, uh, Kova runs out and says, "Hey, look, Ramos, I got a helicopter for you. Go catch Ramos. Get in the helicopter. Go, go after the jeep." So you know they. They get into the helicopter. They're starting to fly over to Zareo's, uh, his, um, to Viobri. And um, so as they're running, as they're flying over there, you know, they, they land. And then, you know, I'm going to pause right there. Remember how I told you how Michael sets you up? This, this freaking snake, this metaphor, this slow python snake. He has been talking about the bulls and the ranches and the whole thing. And look how he wove into a freaking bullfight, a matador. You know, again, from the last um, chapters, Harry first went from thinking it wasn't a sport into the majestic dance that the matador did with the bull. And I guess it was since there was a sports, a, a sense of bravery behind it. And here we go. You know, and so I felt like, again, he set me up. You know, all of a sudden now I'm feeling like Michael Conley got me again because how the hell do you weave in a bullfighting and make it part of a, a crucial part of the story? And so I love that portion. And again, this is why I like this guy. I like this, his writing. This is why I like Michael Conley's writing because, you know, I don't care how many times I read his books and I'm thinking, okay, I'm looking out for it. I'm, I'm not going to be surprised. And he gets me. And I can say that from the first book all the way through the last book I just read. And, you know, so just so everyone's on the same page, you know, so as they land, the bull attacks the helicopter. And um, I think it was called El Templar. El Templar. He attacks the helicopter, flips the helicopter on his side, and the pilot is down. Ramos gets out, and Ramos shoots at the bull. And again, this is 1993. But, you know, we have learned, you know, a, we don't shoot at a moving car because, you know, it's been always, it's been trained in our head that if you say you get the best shot in the world then you hit the driver, now you got a 5,000 pound bullet, you know, now being steered anywhere, you never know what it can hit. So we've been trained to move the fuck out of the way, just jump out of the way, get out of the way, let it go by. But Ramos is taking shots after shots after, after the bull. and. You know, sometimes you do, and I've seen it, it happened to me, you know, when you do some initial training and um, some of the things, after you, and that's why we train. We train because we make mistakes, and those trainers are showing us our mistakes. You get planted. You get your foot like it's like, like in cement. You, you know, you got the weapon in your hand, and you're just firing this weapon, and you're shooting, 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 and then, you know, the instructor will blow the whistle like, Phil, what are you doing? Well, the threat's there. He's like, dude, that threat. It's been, it would have been better for you to get out the way, let the threat pass, reassess, and then move. Because, again, if you, the best shot in the world, it's still you're going to have a problem. If you do the best thing in the world, say you hit your target. Now you got 5,000 pounds. Again, it's mostly is a metaphor of a car, but any large object. And definitely a bull. Because then even Harry says, you know what? Ramos just emptied this clip in this guy, in his damn bull, and his bull's still charging all over the place. And see, you then see, the bull gets attracted to the, the yellow lettering on the jacket. And Harry uses that as a matador's, I think it's called a cape, but so I don't know. So I'm gonna call it a cape, the matador cape. And you have Harry kind of, you know, trying to be uh, impromptu matador. Doing this portion, I was super hyped up because I just couldn't believe I got sucked in again by Michael Conley and he's using uh, a bull and a bullfighting to get Harry out of a situation. And again, so non-traditional. And, and so uh, Ramos uh, gets killed by the bull. Uh, they start to try to render her aid, but I guess his, again, from the book that his, his net was cleanly broke. So Ramos is down. Harry gets, you know, gets on the radio, tells Kovo Ramos is down and he turns the radio off because he knows what Kovo is going to say. Stand by and wait. But now Harry's like, fuck it. It's too much has happened. I'm going after, I'm going after Zaria. I'm going, I'm going to the tunnel again from the book. I'm going into the tunnel by said when they land, come with backup. And then Aguilar says, no, 
I'm going with you. And he said it in a way that invited no debate. That's his partner. Impromptu as it is, Harry has proven. Again, you know what? Also, too, that trust, Brick, didn't just, if you notice, it didn't flow one way. Now, Aguilar, I mean, Harry has gotten Aguilar's trust, and they're working as a unit now. And again, who thought that these two guys with these two different backgrounds would then come together? And it was because Harry refused to follow the institutional thinking. He trusted his gut. Like he said at the beginning of this interaction, when he first went down to Mexicali to go into the, um, to the Mexi- Mexicali Police Department, you know, this guy's a, he's, he's a cop. And I'm going to trust him as much as I possibly can until I see otherwise. And here we are again. You know, Harry's going into another tunnel. You know, here's a tunnel rat going back into a tunnel. And again, Michael has woven this tunnel into Harry's life. And again, I love it. I love the fact how Michael Conley has done it again. You know, so they drop into the tunnel and he can clearly see that the way the tunnel is turning is not turning towards um, Enviobreed. It's turning to a different place. Again, from the book, he was scared. In Vietnam, one leaving Charlie's tunnels always meant the end of fear. It was like being born again. You were leaving the darkness for safety in the hands of comrades, out of the black and into the blue. Not this time. This time it was opposite. And yeah, he's right, because now he's popping his head up. Harry's popping his head up into an unknown. He's so used to, like I said, when he comes out, normally his friends and comrades are around. Now he's popping his head out. He has to do something totally against his um, his training is to come out into an unknown. And then, so once he comes out, he sees that he's not in Enviobreed. He's in the furniture place. And so remember, there is consequences for breaking the rules. And here's the consequence, because they got a search warrant, and we got it without all the intel. And again, even if it was a second tunnel, and your CI only knew about one of the tunnels, which is possible. But see, that is Michael Connolly's way of, to me, is there always a cost to breaking the rules. And even Harry has a cost of breaking the rules. And here we found out that there was a second tunnel. And Harry broke into the tunnel and didn't, um, I mean, broke into Enviobreed and didn't know anything about the second tunnel. And that not knowing the second tunnel was a way to let Zareel get away. And so then, you know, after Kovo uh, responds and everyone's walking around, seeing the second tunnel, you know, Aguilar pretty much says, you know, we got, you know, the CI fucked us. Kovo said, you know, Everyone said, the CI, he, he knew about the first tunnel, but didn't know about the second tunnel? Bullshit. And so right here, you know, Harry didn't say anything to them that he was a CI. He didn't say anything to Kovo that he was the one who, he was the one who gave uh, Ramos the proper cause for Enviobreed. And I think that's going, I think Harry's going to take that for, you know, even he said it, I think he's going to have to live with that one for a while. And so being a team lead, it is, it is, let me just say this, being a team lead is thrilling. And Kovo, it pretty much expresses it here. It's like, you know, I might as well not go, I might as well not go back. His career, he feels as though his career is over. Because even though they took down a major meth lab, the main target got away, two dead law enforcement officers, and he feels as though it was a big, a big failure. But then, again, Remember how many of you guys said, don't trust Aguilar? Well, Aguilar goes back into the barn, looks around, and he says, he looks down on the ground, says, the Pope has new boots. And he looks at the boots and describes the boots that Bosch knows that was in Moore's closet. And then Bosch even said he missed that clue. You know, the boots has always been, you know, that, you know, that was a big clue. He saw what he wanted to see. And remember, my, you know, in our early podcast, my brother and I talked about this, 
you you go into an investigation. It is again, it's easy to do this. So when I say this, please believe me, it's really easy to do, and you have to fight not doing this. But you have to keep all options are on the table. There's everyone's a suspect until you clear them. And that's good, bad, or indifferent. And Bosch even made it, well, Michael Conley even shows even the great Harry Bosch made a mistake. He missed a clue. And, and this and that's that's one of the things I like about I love about Michael. I love about the, the character of Harry Bosch because he's not perfect. Who amongst us is perfect? But he's still willing to do the job. He's trying to do the best he can. And but I still like the fact that it shows the human side of Harry Bosch. take a quick break and go over the question of the day and again the question of the day is taken from chapter 32 during the showdown with Moore at the castle why didn't Bosch order Moore to throw his gun down and one he was looking for uh, he was looking out for Sylvia or two Harry was looking for some um, street justice you know, again, you guys surprised me, and I love doing this, and I'm going to keep doing this, uh, this question of the day. It was split 50-50. Half everyone says he was looking out for Sylvia. Another half said uh, he was looking to get some street justice. And, you know, also on Facebook, an individual by uh, Richard, Richard on Facebook had some great insights and in his interpretation on why Harry, uh, or at least the two questions that I posed, and he actually said neither one. I'm paraphrasing. He said neither one of them was right. That Harry did not does not like um, loose ends, and by letting more talk, he was able to tie up some loose ends. And again, I'm just paraphrasing because he actually wrote some great a great response. So I'm not doing it justice by just shortcutting it. But to get the gist of his what he said, please go to Facebook and you can see his response. But in my opinion, was he looking out? Was he looking out for Sylvia, or was he looking to get some street justice? I'm going to say a little bit of both. And again, that's not a cheap way out. That's not a cheap way out, guys. And 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 be patient with me on here, because he should have right off the bat. If Harry's intention was to take more back, he told him everything else: move slowly, keep your hands where I can see them. He should have said, if in the back, and he even questioned his own motives. He said it even before he shot Moore. Again, from the book, why didn't he tell Moore to take the gun out of his pants and drop it? And again, let's, let's look at it again. Why didn't he tell Moore, take the gun out of his pants and drop it? There was a long moment of silence during which he thought about himself and his motives. So, Harry is already... He gives us the idea. He's planted the seed already. Michael Conley planted the seed that Harry had to think about. Why didn't he tell the guy to drop the weapon? So I think it was some street justice. I'm going with street justice. It was street justice for Porter. But definitely Porter didn't deserve what he got. And Moore was a cop. And he he's embraced the devil. He he now he did find out who he was. You know, was he a saint or a sinner? And he decided he's going to be a sinner. So I think Michael puts in our head to question uh, Harry's motives in this situation. Because Harry himself questioned his motives in this situation. Here is a methodical and criminal investigator. He knew to do all the textbook police procedures. Move slowly. Let me see your hands. You see a weapon, drop the weapon with your you know, if a guy's left-handed, you know, you can tell where someone is, uh, is weapons position. Use the opposite hand to remove the weapon because it's awkward. And, you know, you remove it, drop it. If his intentions were to try to get more to come in, I don't think he was going to get let more come in. Harry wanted some street justice. And i also like to, again, thank everyone for... Uh, carrying me and keep me fueled 
keep this podcast going. I love what I'm doing. I like it. And I love the feedback from you guys. And, you know, I want, I want to first, let me apologize. You know, I've never gave this pod, uh, this Facebook page a shout out. And I feel kind of remorse because they let me, not only do I have a Facebook page, but also to the people and of the uh, Harry Bosch fan page is phenomenal. And you guys need, if you haven't gone there, go there and ask to be um, become a member of this particular group on Facebook. They do. I love the, co- the content that's on there. It's amazing because there are some lot of uh, people on that f- Facebook page who are just as diehard fans as, as I am. So they, um, you do yourself a disservice by not going there. And they had let me in their world and I could share my content and I could share everything that I'm doing with this podcast on that particular uh, Facebook page. So again, it's called Harry Bosch by Michael Conley fan page on Facebook. So, uh, so go there, ask, become a uh, member of the group and I think you will enjoy yourself. And lastly, again, I just want to say, I just want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your comments and your interactions are great. And I really feel as though we are at the beginning of something and we've been growing together, but we have a lot to do. And there's a lot of good books that's to be reviewed. And so I'm looking forward to it. I'm having a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun for me. I hope it coming. I hope it comes through to you guys, the listeners. So, again, uh, have your friends and family uh, give us a try. And you know, again, we're on Google, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, or whatever. Yada yada yada. And as always, I seem to be rambling at this portion. So I'm. Let's go back to hitting the streets. So then we have um, Michael calling Teresa and he explains how Moore is still alive and how it was all set up. But, you know, it was during this interaction with Teresa. It's kind of sad because Bosch says, well, you're the only person I can trust right now. And I actually believe him. I actually believe that out of everyone he, you know, in this situation that he can trust Teresa. And again, he trusts that she has her own agenda because she does have an agenda. You know, she, he says in this whole uh, back and forth, and, you know, as he was talking to himself, that she's well on her way to become the chief of medical uh, examiner. And if you remember from, from the very beginning of this book, I had a problem with Deputy Chief Irving getting involved in this investigation. Please trust me, everybody. I was not setting you guys up. I genuinely felt as though I've never seen a deputy chief act this way. Like I told you before, in I think it was the first podcast, first uh, episode of this book, where I've seen plenty of chiefs show up on the crime scene and they look around, they look apart, they you know, keep their hands in the pocket, and they nod, and they you know give this you know command presence, but they don't get their hands in the dirt the way Irving did. And this is why. This is why chiefs. Don't get their hands in the dirt because he circumvented the procedural way to do things. He went into Moore's personnel file and pulled his print card. Now, all cops prints are in the DOJ's database. That's just, I hope that's not a secret. Everyone, you know, before I get a job, they got to fingerprint me to make sure that I'm no, I'm no, I'm no Zario. <laughs> you know, then I'm not impersonating somebody else. So. All police officers' fingerprints are in DOJ's database. And that, that is the place where you get all your prints. You don't go to the personnel file because just like LAPD, we have access to all our personnel file because you never know. Someone, just like Harry has said, you never know if someone filed a complaint against you. You want to make sure that any uh, uh, accolades and or discipline actions are in there or not in there, you know, because you have timeframes of when things get taken out, all that kind of stuff. So the mere fact that Irving was so involved in this investigation from the beginning showed, and I, and I knew it. I mean, I did. I mean, that, that, I just knew that that was going to be a problem. And, and again, that, that we knew something was wrong with that crime scene. Again, 
The evidence was there. All the stuff was there. And that goes back to this, well, how Michael gives this snake metaphor, this whole Python. Remember, Donovan had said that was the cleanest hotel room he's ever had to process before. That was a big clue. That should have been a clue right there that that room was that clean and the only people's prints in that room happened to be Moore's. That's it. Ugh. That was a big red flag. Again, now looking, you know, again, hindsight's 2020. But even Donovan said that back then when he was telling Harry something's wrong with this whole particular scene. In doing this conversation, Teresa asked Harry, well, are you going to stop the funeral? Are you going to say anything? And he makes the decisions like, no, I don't think I'm going to, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to stop it. And I don't think he's going to stop it because of Sylvia. And because of the fact that Sylvia will lose that pension that uh, she would, that she would get in a lot of duty death of her husband. And also too, I don't think he's going to stop it. Remember, Harry needs to bring this case back. He even said he needs to bring everything back in a nice boat because he's in trouble. Harry's in trouble for disobeying Chief um, Irving for coming back. He's in, in trouble for following up an investigation where he was explicitly told to stay away from. And having more, having this funeral for a dead uh, drug dealer that Irving now has been the one who, who caused this thing to be spiraling out of, out of control from, from day one. He has a little bit, you know, a, a little bit cover. He's looking for some cover for himself because he's going to need it. He's absolutely going to need it. You know, not only does he need to bring this thing home, but he's need to make sure that whatever Irving's going to do, he can say, well, you can burn me, but I'm going to burn you too. So I think it was a two-pronged attack why he didn't stop this funeral, one for Sylvia, but one to hold over Irving's head. And so then we see after Harry finishes his conversation with Teresa, he responds back to the, he responds to the castle. And, you know, because he's suspecting that's where Moore is going to go back. He's going to go back to that freaking castle. That's where it all began, that castle. I'm pretty sure that's where it's going to end. And then to go back to Moore and his motives, because I think Moore, I think Moore's tired. I think, matter of fact, he even says it here. You know, sometimes, you know, um, well, before I go there, when Harry is sweeping the place, he gets into the hotel, gets into the castle, and he sees the van, the Metro Tech van that, uh, quote unquote, was the real, but now we know it's more, had used to escape the ranch. And inside, Moore left a shotgun on the seat. When he did that, I'm thinking, okay, he left the shotgun on the seat. And that shotgun is where Harry, he puts his weapon away and he takes a shotgun and he uses the shotgun to continue sweeping the, uh, the, uh, the home. And he finds more upstairs. And, you know, when he confronts uh, Moore, Harry says to Moore, you wanted someone to come. And Moore states, sometimes I, sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. And so Moore just, just got tired. I think Moore got tired of that whole scene. So when Harry's talking to Moore while he is up in the room, and again, from the book, he says, you mean three bodies? Yes, uh, well, I guess you could say justice happened. Greenie was a leech who had been sucking Zuriel for years. Our piece detached him, you could say. Then who detached our piece and dance? And then Moore says, I did that, Harry. And he said it without hesitation. The words froze Bosch. Moore was a cop. He knew never to confess. You don't talk until there was a lawyer on your side and a plea bargain in place and the deal was signed. And so Harry is frozen because he can't believe what he's hearing. That Moore has totally embraced being a sinner. He is the cop. If there was any cop left in Moore, is done, is gone. And then, you know, I guess I love, I like how Bosch is still looking out for the little guy. He says, um, what about the old man, the laborer? What did he do? <laughs> you know, well, Moore said, well, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Surreal said to me, you know, when he came through the tunnel on his last trip, um, 
the guy wasn't supposed to be in the room. And he couldn't, he couldn't uh, trust that the old guy wouldn't uh, take a chance that he wouldn't tell someone about the tunnel. And that's the reason why the guy gets killed. I mean, you know, so you know, Harry's still looking out for the, the little guy. And one of the things from the, you know, that is the whole centerpiece of this particular book and definitely these particular chapters, again, from the book, why didn't you let it go, Bosch asked. What? This place, your father, the whole thing, you should have let it go. You should have let the past go. I was robbed of my life, man. He kicked us out. My mother, how do you let go of a past like that? Fuck you, Bosch. You don't know. But see, Moore's wrong because Bosch does know. And he knows that there is a lot of pain. No, again, he didn't grow up. He isn't Bosch didn't grow up in the most ideal situation. But he didn't let, I think he, he channels that pain, that struggles into resolve than to look out for the little guy. Not to be so hung up on the past and some things he just could not change. And, you know, we see Moore's life, you know, going, we did say Aunt Mary, you know, he just wanted to remember the past. And, you know, she says, Aunt Mary says, you know, from the last book, last chapters, you know, he would just come around, just sit around and look at that place. It got too bad. It got so bad that his father had to put up a wall to stop him from, quote unquote, looking at um, looking at the place. That's a guy who's definitely stuck on the past and not able to live in the future. You know, Bosch and Moore have some great introspective conversation about each other. And one of the things that, you know, Harry asked him, you know, dude, why can't you let go of the of the past? And, you know, Moore kind of hits him back a little bit. Because, again, from the book, um, they don't want to know about this. Bad for business, man. But you see, you're not in the department, Bosch. I mean, you're in it, but you're not in it. See what I'm saying? Again, what I say, the first thing that follows you is your reputation. And remember, you know, remember the first time Bosch and Moore met? You know, Moore was putting on this whole uh, act as though he was worried about Chastain coming at him. And he said, you know, again, from the book, I checked you out. That has a totally different meaning now, doesn't it? Again, that's that goddamn Michael Connolly snaking me, man, because he says, you know, when I read that, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Now that has a totally different connotation to it. He checked out Harry because he knew Harry wouldn't let him go, let go of the investigation. And Harry was Moore's insurance plan. You know, I'm thinking, you know, back when he said it, it was inferred. Yeah, I checked you out because you you went against the man. You know, you went against ID and you you're still standing. They didn't have anything to do with it. He he checked out Harry because he knew Harry was a pit bull and Harry was his insurance plan just in case the the fake um or the stage homicide, excuse me, the, the fake or the stage suicide went bad. As we finish up here, I'd like to bring back because see now. You know, I hopefully I've got you guys on high alert because there's nothing subtle. I mean, these these little clues that Michael Connolly leaves for us is they're, they're so subtle that when they hit you, it's like a Mack truck. And so one of the things, you know, again, uh, from the book, the second photo was a black and white. Um, the second photo was an old black and white with discolorations around the edges, indicating that it came from a picture frame indicated it came from a frame. It showed Kyle Moore and Zario as boys. They were playfully wrestling, both shirtless laughing. Their skins were bronze, blemished only by the tattoos. Each boy had a Satan-centered tattoo on his arm.
And that brings us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts Person. And how Everyone Counts or No One Counts Person for chapters 29 through 32 is is our boy investigator Carlos Aguilar. You know, Carlos Aguilar has went from I mean, let's, let's be honest, you guys, a lot of people did not want or didn't trust Aguilar. And this book, especially this particular chapter, shows that he is a true partner of Harry. He told Harry, I'm going with you. He jumps down the tunnel with him. And most importantly, he discovers that the Pope has new boots. So for chapters 29 through 32... Everyone counts or no one counts person is Investigator Aguilar. Well, this concludes chapters 29 through 32 review of The Black Ice. Again, thanks for your patronage. And like always, you can go to Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to get us. And again, while you're there, don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Also, please don't forget uh, to leave us comments. Those comments are very valuable, and I appreciate your feedback. And uh, don't forget to check us out at www.thethinbluelinepod.com There you will find more investigative content concerning Michael Connolly and Harry Bosch. Lastly, could you share us with your friends and family so we could continue to grow? That would be much appreciated. So next time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we will be reviewing chapters 33 through 34 of The Black Ice. Until then, I'm 10-7 for the remainder. <laughs>